Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM, your local community radio station. You are with myself, Andy, manning the panel today, and Ian, who has put together today's show. Today's show is really about the hypocrisy in the Australian Parliament, and I've titled it Rule 303, which is a reference back to an earlier age. Harry Brake Morant was sent to a Boer War in Southern Africa, and he committed war crimes. And, of course, this is a follow-on from last week, where we were talking about what the findings of the Brereton Report had said and what was the Australian Parliament's response. I've got an interview with Alison Bronowski, who is from War Powers Reform Group, and we're going to play that interview first, and then we come to an interview with a peace activist who was on an SAS base in Victoria in 2012, 2014, and then... 2020. A lot of interesting stuff in it. So we'll start off with Alison Bronowski. The Australian Parliament said to us that Iraq was a bad war in the end, poorly executed. They don't own up to the reality of that war, but they say that Afghanistan is different. It's a good war. It was keeping us safe and stopping terrorists from coming to our door. It's, it's not it's not the Australian Parliament that's saying that to us, if I may say so. It's Australian governments that are saying that, and there's a difference. Because what we in Australians for War Powers Reform want is for the Australian Parliament to have a view on these matters. And up to now, we don't have one because uh, no Prime Minister has allowed a debate or a vote in the Parliament before the troops are sent to war. And they don't have to, because the Constitution doesn't require it. But that's why we want a change in the law that makes it essential for any government that wants to send Australian troops to war to, first of all, have a debate and a vote in both Houses of Parliament on the matter. And if the democratic process is such that it the people's representatives say, yes, this is a war in which we should be involved. Then the troops go. And there's a whole different uh, starting point from what the SAS confronted in Afghanistan because they were sent there on the word of John Howard that they were supposed to be cleaning out al-Qaeda 
from Afghanistan, al-Qaeda having been said to have done 9-11. Now, al-Qaeda was gone in a very short time from Afghanistan. There was not one Afghan who was involved in the attack on New York and Washington. So they were still there, but why were they there? Well, they had to find another reason for being there, and the reason for being there was to fight the Taliban because the Taliban were Muslims and we didn't like Muslims. So we stayed there and fought the Taliban. And the poor old SAS were told to do this. And they had no idea what a victory in a war against the Taliban would look like. They had no idea why they were fighting them. They weren't, the Taliban weren't enemies of Australia. They didn't threaten us in any way. They didn't even threaten the United States in any way. But we were there for none of those reasons. We were there because the Americans said we ought to be and because John Howard said we will fight the war on terror anywhere in the world. Now, that is something to which the ANZUS Treaty does not oblige Australia at all. The Americans, when they drafted it, made very sure that it applied only to the Pacific area. So what are we doing in the Middle East? What are we doing in Afghanistan? We're doing what the Americans say because we hope that if we ever need defending, they'll do it. There is no guarantee that they will, and Afghanistan does not provide it. Not only that, but John Howard made sure that what we sent were troops who were kept most of the time out of the line of fire, and as you said, the SAS got stuck with doing the hard yards, which is not really what the SAS was originally designed to be. They were supposed to be special... Uh, special troops with commando skills to get out there and find out what was going on. Not to go on routine patrols like in Vietnam and kill anything that moved. That was not their original task. So you can imagine how it is that the culture of the SAS has changed and for the worse. And although it's unforgivable on the part of the individuals who did the various things, it's understandable that they have poor morale, and when you have poor morale, these sorts of things happen. You mentioned the executive can send uh, our troops to war without the parliament, but I recall a, um, a Senator Scott Ludlam putting up an opposition to this very power, um, you know, when it was, I've forgotten the name of the actual bill, but it was like a, this was discussed in the parliament, and he got li little or, or very little support. So the parliament didn't seem willing to put the executive in check. So what, what do you suggest that we do and our listeners do to try to restrain the Australian governments from putting us in these wars? Well, what Scott Ludlam did was he proposed a change in the war powers to put restrictions on the way in which the executive that's to say the, uh, the National Security Council of Cabinet, can decide virtually on the world word of the Prime Minister alone to order the Defence Minister to send the troops to war. Right? What Scott Ludlam wanted to do was change that to make it necessary, as I described before, for there to be a debate and a vote in both Houses of Parliament before that happened. And Scott Ludlam's bill was thrown out not because there was anything wrong with it. The government and the opposition at the time poured cold water on it, claiming that it was poorly drafted. Well, that's what they do when they just don't want to consider something. The second reason they didn't want to consider it was that it came from the Greens. 
um, anything that comes from the Greens, they were intent on vilifying in the Parliament. And the last thing they wanted was a party with as much power as, as they, the two major parties, have. And if they conceded that to the Greens, then, and, and Scott London was a terrific politician, he was very smart and a great loss to the Parliament now, I must say, then they would have lost a lot of political clout, which they didn't want. Both of the major parties want to hang on to the war powers. Apart from one or two backbenchers who understand what I'm talking about, they love that power. They want to be able to exercise it without the strength it gives them all sorts of clout that they like very much. They go to the annual meetings, selective meetings with the United States, and they just love that stuff. And our cons- uh, willingness to go to American wars is what gets it for them. Now, they don't want to get rid of that, and they, the last thing they want is to have the voting public in Australia ask, if they want a war or not, because they're very scared that the public will say, no, what's this for? What do we want this for? And particularly, interestingly enough, that kind of questioning will come from the country areas, come from the National Party uh, base, where a lot of the young troops have always come from. And people in the bush are very sceptical about what's going to happen to their sons from long experience. And they don't like it. And that's another reason why governments in power don't want the people to be asked. The other thing that would come about if we made this change is that because we'd have a vote in the parliament, there would be some members who would vote uh, with the crossbench or with the opposition who would vote against their own governments on this. And no government likes that risk, particularly when their own majority is very small. They would would be feel compelled to because it would be like a conscience vote. They would have to go back to their electorates and say, I voted for that war. Yes, I did. And here are the reasons why I did. And when the war goes bad, if we're fighting with the United States, it inevitably will. They will be in hot water with their electorates. And their voters will be saying, what did you vote for that for? You voted for that. You supported that. You told us this was a good thing to do. Now look what's happened. And these are the reasons why um, the, the politicians resist bills like Scott London's. And we now have, or rather, um, uh, Senator Steele John is proposing in the next few days to revive Scott London's bill, amend it, as, as necessary and put it back in the parliament and, and force them to face up to this just at the right time with all the Burton stuff coming up. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with? If people are interested in the facts behind this and the arguments for and against it, they can find it all on our website, Australians for War Powers Reform, we are, and the website is www.warpowersreform.org.au. Thanks very much. Bye. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. That was Alison Bronowski there uh, chatting with 
Ian, um, I'm just grabbing a song here. Here's one from the Iraq, beginning of the Iraq War. This is Billy Bragg with The Price of Oil.
Billy Bragg there, the price of oil, um, a good thing to remember when we talk about the SAS war crimes um, committed in Afghanistan. Presumably there were a few in Iraq, though the SAS played a lesser role there. Um, it wasn't part of the scope of Justice Paul Burton's report the other week. But it's good to remember the question of why, why did we ever go in the first place? And that song was from... 2003 when the war began before that ian was talking with alison bronowski about the powers of um how australia can go to war i've tried to look at this from the point of view of what solutions do we have um you know obviously there's the parliament and and then there's also what people are doing outside the parliament extra parliamentary opposition and of course now this week we we've had the Christians Against All Terrorism went back onto the Swan Island base. But that has a whole history to it. And so when I started the show, I didn't really get how it all fitted in because I, I knew about this business in 2014 about how the, the peace activists down on the Swan Island base, which is training the SAS for Afghanistan, they were savagely treated. And I, I just um, couldn't understand why, you know, why there was not more public knowledge of what was going on and what was the culture of the SAS, what was the training. And so I went to the parliament and interestingly, really the only people in the parliament who were asking questions, well, the only person I could find was Scott Ludlam. And um, he, he, you know, he was putting questions to the the army chiefs about what was, you know, what were they doing? Um, and of course, Scott Ludlam was one of those people who left the parliament under the constitutional thing. And so then I went to the follow up. Just quietly, he was too good for parliament, and he <laughs> gave up in the end. But when he after they kicked him out because of the citizenship thing, he's like, I'm not going back there. But anyway, that was a little aside going in. Yeah, so he, he got knocked back. He tried to reform the powers to go to war and the, apparently the, the basis upon which we went to both the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war was a power exerted by the executive, not the parliament. That former diplomat, Alison Bronowski, has just sort of made that point. But then when you go to the parliament, they sort of go along with it and uh, you're not getting people saying, well, Maybe we should change the rules so that the the people's parliament, the representatives of people, they get to say and vote on whether we should be going on these wars. I've been a bit ambitious. I've tried to go all the way back to Harry Breaker Morant and, and, and try to look at, well, why, you know, that's when the parliament was formed. Why Why did we get involved in those earlier wars where there were accusations of war crimes? Uh, you know, uh, maybe we maybe we should just play. Um, maybe we should just play what um, Greg Rolls, who was on the Swan Island base, would just play that the the Greg two, where I ask him questions, and then we'll go back to um, some of the earlier stuff and um, listen to, to how Greg explains it because he was the one who was there at the beginning when the SAS were being trained for the, the dehumanising events that we've heard about through the Brereton Report. Uh, good morning. Can you please introduce yourself? Hey, my name is Greg Rolls. 
I wonder if you're familiar with the story of Breaker Morant, who was a, a, um, a soldier who was sent to the Boer War, and that was fought in South Africa under British command. Are you, are you familiar with that story? Yes, I'm, I'm quite familiar with uh, the story of Breaker Morant, yes. How do you regard uh, Breaker Morant? Do you regard him as a war hero or as a war criminal? personally don't really believe in war heroes. I think the best wars are the wars we avoid. So my heroes are people who, given their freedom or their lives, trying to prevent or disrupt war. Um, I do think that capital punishment is also a problem. I don't agree with capital punishment. But Breaker Morant was clearly, uh, you know, from what I can read, he clearly executed unarmed individuals. So he is, in my book, a war criminal and should have been prosecuted for that. On Breaker Morant's gravestone, the following words, and these were put there at his own request. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. What do you make of this in the context of what you know about Breaker Morant? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I tend to think of us all as like one big human family and that we're all connected and interconnected. And what we do to the most vulnerable, we do to ourselves. So I sort of hear those words and I, I, I just think, you know, what, how, how we harm each other, we are harming ourselves. So they, they ring true in that sense. I'm not sure if uh, that's, that's what the old horse breaker meant, but um, that's, that's what rings true for me when I hear those, those words. He is um, said to have made this uh, request for his epitaph and uh, he, just prior to him being taken out to be uh, executed by the British for war crimes. He had told the commanding officer that, you know, he was asked if he, if he wanted a priest, and he said, no, I'm a pagan. And he said, the reason I say that is that I just don't think that there is a higher God or authority that is here to bring justice for, you know, ordinary human beings like me. Strangely, he asked that they, they actually put the epitaph, and that is a direct quote from uh, Matthew's epistle. And mm. I was just wondering, well, what, how do you see it? Is there, are you like with him on that? Or is it, you know, is it, are you seeing it from a Christian point of view or? Yeah. So the, the group that I have done, did peace actions with last week, uh, we call ourselves Christians Against All Terrorism. Uh, we believe all forms of war are terrorism and that as Christians, it's actually our duty to, to uh, on this continent to get in our way, to get in the way of that kind of violence. Uh, so I definitely believe that um, the nature of the high, you know, I've read a lot and meditated and prayed a lot about the nature of God and heaven and hell. I basically come back to you know, love, love is a law and the law is love. So I don't, I don't know anything supernatural. I, I, I'm very wary. In fact, I completely doubt anyone who says they know what the supernatural is or what happens after we die or whatever. But I do know love and what drives me and what's always motivated me is that I was born in a position in this world as a, as a uh, white man in Australia where I was given so much and had so much stuff thrown at me in opportunity. And I knew from a young age that that was at the expense of, you know, I was watching kids starve, starving to death in Africa on, on our little TV uh, in, in working-class home in Goulburn, New South Wales, uh, and I just knew that something wasn't right. And um, I'd say, you know, just someone born in my position, uh, you have to, you know, if you if 
you can't ignore love. Like, love is there, and I think a lot of our lives are sent suppressing that love. And I, you know, I want to live my life suppressing it as little as possible. So that's really all anything solid that I know about, you know, God or anything. And I think that um, anyone you have serious conversations where will say it. I, I go to Quakers. I'm a practicing uh, member of the Religious Society of Friends. And we believe that uh, the, the light is in everyone and that all beings have light and that we're all equal under creation. So... Um, yeah, that's, you know, I, I sort of try and respond to that in all people as best I can. And that means standing up for those who, under our brutal economic system, can't stand up for themselves. So I want to go now to uh, another religious person from the Hillsong Church, and that, of course, is the Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison. On social media this week, there was a an image, sort of like a cartoon, that showed an SAS soldier in Afghanistan slitting the throat of a small child and the words at the bottom of the cartoon are don't be afraid we are coming to bring you peace the response by scott morrison was firstly he said this tweet by a chinese officially dubious but he said this tweet is utterly outrageous it's a falsification of the facts do you agree with the Prime Minister? Well, one of the things that shocked me in, in the wake of the Brereton report and led, led to the action we're going to talk about in a minute um, is that people are pretending to be shocked about these allegations and about the war crimes that Australian soldiers committed. We knew in 2010, 2011, there were Afghan families talking openly about foreign special forces soldiers murdering their families. We knew this. Uh, in 2014, four, uh, three friends and I were assaulted on Swan Island by SAS soldiers. Um, we, we, people have known for years and years and years that this is what the SAS does. So for Scott Morrison to, um, you know, jump from shock at what the SAS has been up to to back to his um, jingoistic, nationalistic uh, calls for Australians to protect Australia is horrific. And I find it the antithesis of that love and uh, faith that I was talking about earlier, uh, where, where is the love for the people who are being killed and suffered at the hands of, of the Australian SAS and our, our military regime over there? And uh, so I, I think that we, we need to be in a time, all of us, anyone who's paid taxes and stood by whilst, whilst, our, whilst our troops were over there committing these crimes against the Afghan people, this, is, this should be a time of great repentance for us. Now, the, the Chinese artists who some... A, you know, an unofficial propaganda artist. I think, uh, you know, I am not a fan of the, the Chinese government and what it's done to many innocent people over there, the Hong Kong protesters, the Uyghurs, the Tibetans. Uh, but uh, in this case, you know, he's made a point and we can't, just because the Chinese elite are doing something wrong, we have to acknowledge that the Australian uh, community and the Australian elite also did something wrong and we should be repenting. If we want to talk about human rights and push for a better world, we need to repent of our own crimes uh, and we need to make, make this right and make this better. We need to abolish the SAS, and we need to seriously question the direction we're going with increased militarism. And for Scott Morrison to say anything else, um, I mean, it's what politicians do, but it's, it's a horrendous, it's a very horrendous thing that we should all be resisting as best we can. The depiction that was in that cartoon, it was a representation of what was in the Brereton report. There was an un, strangely an unredacted account of the murder of, 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 you know, the slitting of the throats of two, not, not one, but two children, and then the dumping of their bodies in the river. The uh, artist that you're referring to, his name is Li Zhan Zhao. He, 
the words that he put above the image, which uh, that Scott Morrison didn't allude to, uh, was shocked by murder of Afghan civilians and prisoners by Australian soldiers. We strongly condemn such acts and call for holding them accountable. Do you agree with what he said there? I mean... Yeah, of course, of course, we should be holding the soldiers accountable. That you know, the, the crimes are being committed, and there should be due process. But for anyone, for any politician, any senior leader in the military, any SAS commander, to say they didn't know what was happening, I mean, you have to bear in mind two things here. The Burden Report was an internal uh, military report. There's, there was the Inspector General of the ADF, which is supposed to be independent, but it's still the military investigating the military. Okay. So this is so the reports that we've got are only what whistleblowers witnessed and could get credible evidence of, and what the military is willing to admit to. I, I there's no proof, and I have no way of saying this, but there's every chance that this is the tip of the iceberg for what um, what Australian military forces were up to in Afghanistan. So we need a thorough, independent investigation uh, outside of the military. Um, and, and the second thing we need to bear in mind is that this culture, I, I was in the army myself for a few years, and this culture of, uh, you know, I remember like in, I was in basic training in 2001, September, when the, when the towers went down, doing, you know, in the movies you see boot camp and all that kind of thing, I was doing that. And very quickly, um, and I'm going to use a racist term here, and I apologise, but I, I need white Australia to understand the culture in the military. Very quickly, the language went, went during our training from, oh, the enemy is coming over the hill when we're doing our weapons training, trying to, like, you know, the, the uh, effing sand diggers are coming over the hill, are coming for us, and you can't even load your weapon properly, recruit. Very racist, very dehumanising terms. And this is basic training. This is for soldiers in the army who go on to become cooks, truck drivers, and, so, and uh, infantry soldiers. And this was the kind of thinking to other and destroy the enemy that I was exposed to and at the time thought was right and good, uh, that is prolific in the Australian military culture. And the reason we have that is because we are a colony. We colonised this country to take it over. We fought a war against the First Nations inhabitants. And that's been, that's been our mindset ever since, that the enemy is there to be destroyed so we can take what we want. And that is the root of it. And that is going to continue, be it Scott Morrison or Anthony Albanese or any lefty person who becomes Prime Minister. That is going to continue until ordinary Australians embrace nonviolence and lovingly resist this kind of culture. And if we don't get our act together and start resisting it in the coming climate collapse, in the, you know, we get, these, these things are going to be happening to us. This is an urgent issue that Australians need to embrace and need to get in front of resisting, and we need to do it now to do it now.
some new uh, music from the scenic beaches of Byron Bay there. That is Common Enemy with Scorched Earth. That one came out earlier this year. It sounds a lot like those classic peace punk bands of the 80s, though. You are on the Paradigm Shift. We have been talking with Greg Rolls, a peace activist who um, has been involved in protesting the SAS over the years, and we're chatting about the recent release of the Brereton Report into SAS war crimes. Senator for Queensland Claire Moore stood up in the Parliament the 26th of October 2010 and she was voicing her concerns about the war. So it's in that context that she made these following remarks. They, meaning the troops, need to know that no matter how people feel about decisions about the war, once the decision is made, that Australian troops will be serving and that they have the absolute support of the people in this place. So how do you respond to that? Bear in mind this is coming from a left-faction Labor senator. Um, uh, I feel that it's absolutely horrendous. Uh, Basically what I heard there was a green light. I mean, this is the kind of culture where, you know, we worship... Australia is a very secular country uh, in name, but... We have this reverence and religious idolatry of the Anzac legend of the military. So as soon as we say our soldiers are going, we can completely support them. And this kind of green light culture is what allowed SAS soldiers, you know, only what we know of, who knows what the rest of the military was up to, uh, to get away with these horrendous uh, crimes. I I think, like, you know, firstly, we need uh, a War Powers Act that um, puts the power to go to war in the hands of Parliament rather than in the executive. But for a Labor senator to uncritically stand up and say that uh, our our troops have a carte blanche no matter what they do is very irresponsible. And I think Senator Moore needs to take take responsibility for that now and say, uh, yeah, actually, next time we go to war, um, we're going to hold our troops responsible. Now, I say that saying we also I also strongly support we need to care for people who return from war and we need to look after them. But. We also need to hold them accountable and ourselves as an Australian community who elect these politicians and fund these wars. We are also responsible. You know, we're, most of us, not all of us, but most of us are living high on the hog from the material wealth of these wars. We need to take responsibility for what we did. And leaders like Senator Moore also need to stand up and apologise and say sorry for what we've done to the Afghan people and what speeches like that allowed uh, SAS soldiers to get away with. After you know, that endorsement, basically, of the soldiers. She explained herself a little more in more depth, and I'll just read out what she said. She said, Now, the community in Australia must ensure absolutely that the women and girls of Afghanistan will be involved in the future of their country and that the horrors that we have heard about, that they will no longer be the daily expectation of women and girls in that country. Does that change your view of what Senator Moore was about? Or oh, Well, I, I'd like to know what, how, what, what Senator Moore thought about going into Afghanistan in, in the first place. Um, I, I mean, it's the, in 2001, when we went into Afghanistan, it was, I think it was kind of unilaterally agreed that we needed to go in um, because the Taliban, uh, you know, were a horrible regime. And 
But 20 years later, the Taliban are still, in most parts of Afghanistan, a horrible regime. Foreign intervention in Afghanistan is what brought about the rise of the Taliban. How we expected continued violence uh, sponsored by the West uh, was going to make anything better is, is, is miserable. I mean, women and children also suffered uh, at, under, um, uh, under this war. In fact, they suffered the most. So, yeah, the SAS committed war crimes. But they also, there's rumours. So the, the, the image that was depicted in, in the Chinese art, uh, that's uh, a rumour that the Barrett reports that there's strong um, circumstantial evidence that this happened, but they couldn't uncover anything after a few years. And no one solidly forward came could come forward solidly and say who did it, when it happened, or that they saw it. Uh, but it likely happened. It likely happened. And so, you know, think of the families of these children. Think of the families who've suffered under drone warfare in Afghanistan. The Australian military is, has, you know, from Pine Gap and on the ground is a key part of. So it's OK to say we, we've bought some liberal rights for some women and children of Afghanistan. We've done that for a little while now, but... Uh, that can only be held as long as uh, troops are there. And for most pa- people in most parts of Afghanistan, all we've done is increase the violence, taken resources away uh, that could be helped to be building the country up to fight wars and into the pockets of Western arms companies. Uh, what, what we need to do is be working on demilitarising ourselves, making sure we don't go into any more of, the, of these wars, and sharing the extracted wealth. This is a really wider tyrants and brutal regimes rise because we're stealing so much money from the majority world countries, what most people call the developing or the third world, we steal so much capital from them. And that makes desperate people. So we need to share the wealth and we need to embrace nonviolence. So I think, you know, platitudes for women and children in Afghanistan, we all want that. But when you're sending violent military forces over to kill and bomb people, you're never going to support that happening. A few might, might get some help and support, and I really encourage and support that and glad for them and glad that happened. But overall, we've destroyed that country. People, are, people have been starving to over there for years, and we've ripped the guts out of its infrastructure just so, for, for what reason? For profit, profits for a few war companies and, and possibly mining companies. I don't understand how any political leader can stand on their digs and support that. Senator Moore was raising in that speech her concern for uh, Afghani women. Now, that was in 2010. Now, in that year, the Australian Prime Minister was uh, Julia Gillard. And, of course, she was quite famous for her standing up to and challenging uh, Tony Abbott for his blatant sexism. She gave a commitment for Australia to sort of re-engage with the war because it had sort of been going nowhere. The Al-Qaeda had been cleaned out. The Taliban was uh, was then what the Americans were saying, what we had to clean up next. She did give a commitment to the Democrat Party president that, w- that she would continue uh, and stay the course. The human rights in that country were very poor, particularly for women and girls. Now, is this hypocrisy? Is, are they claiming the high moral ground while having, like... Well, uh, the most sexist thing you can do for any country is go to war with it. It's women and children. Sure, you've got your frontline soldiers, and, you know, who, um, who die in battle, but it's women and children who routinely and constantly suffer from disease, food shortages, uh, rape, all the horrible... And, and being bombed in their homes, you know, by, by drones and other things. 
you know, promoting war is never is never a feminist thing to do. It's only feminist for the elite, you know, in, in the upper echelons of liberal feminism. But for the average person in Afghanistan, there were some people from the upper classes in Afghanistan, women who did a bit better. But for the average people on the land, people, uh, their lives either haven't changed since 2001 or they've gotten worse. The most sexist thing you get, I will say it again, is to go to war and to use um, patriarchal, militarised violence to the ends uh, of profiting Western uh, arms companies and, uh, you know, whatever natural resources we want to secure out of the area. From what I can tell of Afghanistan, there was, you know, an attempt to get some rare earth stuff, but mainly mainly what Afghanistan was about was taking uh, Western tax money and putting it into the pockets of arms companies who've made a mozza, an absolute bonanza out of the, the, the bloodshed and the death and destruction of the Afghan people. And if we want that to stop... Australians need to get in the way of these processes, in the way of the military training sites, like like my, me and my friends did at uh, Swan Island, and in the way of the companies that are profiteering from this war, from these wars. Uh, and the only thing that's going to have any chance of slowing down the death and destruction that we've imposed on the Afghan people from afar, and any platitudes by political leaders for women's rights. Uh, whilst at the same time uh, sending guns over to, to, to another person's country is hypocrisy at its highest. Okay, you mentioned there um, that you and your friends went to Swan Island. Now, the, the first instance when you went there was in 2014, and as a result of that, uh, several questions were asked in the Australian Parliament uh, by a Senator, Scott Ludlam, and he made mm. that, put those questions to the military. Now, I want to just play the question and response that he got uh, to the way you were treated on that, that visit in 2014, if I can. Yeah. Just a follow-up question. On the 8th of May, I wrote to the Minister requesting the release, Defence Minister requesting the release of a Defence internal investigative report around the treatment of a number of anti-war demonstrators who had entered the Swan Island military facility last October. According to the protesters, defence personnel on the base reacted in an inappropriate and quite violent manner to the protesters' entrance to the base. I made an attempt using freedom of information that's been denied. <coughs> Could the Minister or any of the if Chief, Chief of Army, if he cares to, commit to releasing this document or a redacted version of it or any information at all that could be put into the public domain? The reason I'm asking is the demonstrators are obviously being publicly held to account for their actions through the courts. It's my belief that defence personnel involved should face a measure of scrutiny as well, not, not merely internal. Well, Senator, what we can say is that um, uh, there was a defence inquiry into the allegations made by the protesters. That inquiry has been finalised. Okay. And the report examined both the circumstances of the trespass incident and also the actions of defence members. So it, it, it looked at both aspects. Uh, the report found that ADF members um, had the authority to arrest the trespass, yep. trespassers and they had the power to search the trespassers and that the arrests and searches were reasonable. Uh, the recommendations of the inquiry relate to the amendment of policy and training for personnel on the powers in relation to trespass uh, and early engagement with Victoria Police for future Swan Island protests. Um, as, you, as you indicated, um, there have been uh, requests uh, for the release of the report, and Army, uh, my understanding is Army is requesting the Minister consider public release of the report at this time. Lieutenant General Angus Campbell, Chief Army. Uh, that's correct, and as I understand it, 
uh, we're late in the process of working through the document for release. Uh, it may not be the original document that was put to you. You're working on a version suitable for public release. Is that what I should understand? Oh, that's right. Uh, redacted yeah. where it needs to be, but otherwise the document. Okay. And is it the case that there have been some amendments to protocols or procedures to deal with these sort of events in future? Do I, have I understood that correctly? Uh, Senator, that, that's correct, although I don't have detail uh, to offer you here. I just don't have the information okay. with that regret, uh, on that issue. We heard there from Vice Admiral Griggs that your ar arrest and search was reasonable. Is that is that true? Uh, absolutely not true. Uh, firstly, the... Uh so uh, can I just give a brief context here? So the Swan Island is a military base, you know, close to the mouth of Port Phillip Bay. It's been uh, defence land since uh, the 19th century. Um, it's on the uh, Wathaurong country in the Kulin Nations. Some friends of mine, before I was involved in the anti-war movement, found out that uh, SAS trained there. So the first Swan Island peace convergence, which uh, happened in 2010, people, uh, Simon Moyle and Jessica Morrison and uh Simon Rees and uh, Jacob Bolton actually went onto the island, you know, shut it down in 2010. In 2011, there was another peace convergence uh, where they blocked the, the front gate. Um, they were everyone who blocked the gate was arrested. They were taken to the Geelong court. Uh, when they told the judge what they were doing there, they said we're trying to prevent the SAS from training. The judge found their case to be proven, but all the charges were dismissed, and they went straight back to the gate and blockaded the only entrance onto the base. 2012 was my first time on the island. Uh, we didn't actually go onto the island that day. We um, blockaded the base with about 30 of us. We actually managed to shut entry to the base just using our bodies. Um, and the police that year didn't want to arrest us. So we actually managed to shut the base down for a week. No one could get on our uh, island. We let people off if they wanted to come off, but no one could get onto the island to commence their training. So throughout all these times, we were talking to people in Afghanistan through the Afghan Peace Volunteers, and they weren't talking to people you'd hear about in the news. They were talk we were talking to your average, uh, you know, working class, living on the land people who had seen what the uh, Australian-trained Afghan military were doing and were telling us stories about brutal uh, torture and execution from foreign soldiers. They didn't know specifically who it was, but they were already seeing this and telling us to this. So this was back 2010. 2013, we had another peace convergence where uh, 13 of us managed to walk onto the island. Um, the gate was not properly locked, so we posed for a photo, popped open the gate, and all walked onto the island and were all arrested. So I say this to the listeners to show that for people on Swan Island, for Victoria Police, there was an established yearly pattern where we would turn up and we would protest and we would go onto the island. So claims from the Swan Island uh, Army Detachment, which includes the SAS, that they didn't know who we were or they didn't realise who we were, ignoring the fact that we'd been uh, at Queenscliff blockading the gate for a week before we went onto the island, are ludicrous. Um, the other thing uh, about the, our, when we went onto the island in 2014, uh, there was eight of us and we uh, took some banners. It was the eve of Australia announcing that it was going to be bombing civilians in Syria, pr pr uh, pretending that we were bombing ISIS. Of course, they were bombing cities where civilians lived. So some of us really wanted to disrupt the SAS, who was still in Afghanistan. We know now from the Fish Veritan report committing these war crimes, we wanted to disrupt that training as much as possible. We wanted to get in the way. So in 2014, we again did another, um, uh, another entry onto the island with banners. 
Um, and in daylight, we, we had a banner. Uh, I, when these two uh, plain clothes men approached me, I put, had my hands in the air and said, you know, we are nonviolent, uh, we are nonviolent peace activists from the Swan Island Peace Convergence. Uh, and the man broke the law. Under, um, under the law, uh, any Commonwealth officer who's trying to arrest you for trespass needs to identify themselves, needs to say who they are and what you're charged, who they are, who they work for, and what you're charged with. Sorry to break in uh, here, just uh, just to make crash tackled me. Sorry, did not identify himself. Did not say a word. He crash tackled me and my friends. That was the start of it. Sorry to break in here, but um, I think it's pertinent point in the in your discourse. Thanks for giving us the background. Um, Mm. But the, the 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 chief of the military, that's this vice admiral Griggs, in response to Scott Ludlam's question. He's saying that the soldiers have the uh, power to arrest and search you, and he mm. confirmed that that they have that. That was your understanding that that they had that power. Uh, they have the power so long as they obey the law, such as identifying themselves, and they use reasonable measures. So, was it reasonable for people to crash tackle um, and do? Which we, I'm happy to go into detail. Just. Just a content and trigger warning for anyone listening. I'm going to describe some physical and sexual abuse. Please, if you have trauma from that, I have trauma from this. So please, if you have that, um, make sure you seek support or um, maybe hear from a friend about what I'm about to say in these points. Uh, uh, Yes, Commonwealth officers, when you're on trespassing Commonwealth land, have the power to arrest you so long as they obey the law. The SAS soldiers who uh, got to us in 2014 disobeyed. They broke the law. So no, they actually didn't have the right to do what they did to us. They disobeyed the law because they assaulted you and did all these terrible things to you. Is that right? Yes, yes. They tortured me. They okay. tortured me and my friends. Now, um, the the follow up um, question that Scott Ludlam put to the military, because there were two responses there, by the way, just for the listener. There was the the vice admiral Griggs, and then there was chief of army. He didn't really give his name very clearly. Um, and he confirmed what the Vice Admiral, who appeared to be speaking on behalf of the Minister in the Parliament that day. But then the Chief of Army said that they had sought, in answer to question by Scott Ludlam, was that they were seeking amendments to the Act to increase the powers of military personnel when dealing with protesters. Is that your understanding of it? Yes. They, uh, they, were, they, were, they were going to increase the... Um, yeah, I think the main thing I got over that is they were going to train the Commonwealth officers in, uh, in um, actually what they could uh, do and not do. So I think there was an acknowledgement that the officers, uh, the Commonwealth officers didn't know um, that they were supposed to identify. And, you know, it's kind of... It's, what I actually hear from that is an admission that the officers broke the law. Ignorance of the law is not an excuse for breaking it. Uh, and I think there's an admission there that uh, the soldiers uh, broke the law and, uh, and that's, that they were trying to rectify that after the event. Well, I went and investigated this a little bit further and I found that one of the motives for the amendments, which are still before the parliament, mm. um, <clears throat> that, you know, several years later, that one of them was to reduce the unfavourable media coverage <laughs> of the actions taken by the military personnel. What do you have to say about that? In all honesty, Ian, um, the 
you know, after, after the assaults happened, we were on the 730, 730 report. Um, and then um, there were, that was kind of the end of the media. Um, there were some small news articles. And I, I have to separate myself. I mean, obviously, I'm personally astounded that I went through this horrible torture. But I, I find it very compelling um, that the Australian media is not interested in Australian soldiers torturing Australian citizens on Australian soil. For some reason, this isn't newsworthy. Um, uh, so I, I think that, you know, in, in some ways, the, 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 the military ducked a big scandal after this happened to us. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that, I mean, the whole point of these protests, the whole reason we go down and get in the way is the military, you know, tyranny, evil, violence, it thrives on secrecy. And what we're, what we're literally trying to do is shine a light to expose it. And so, and, you know, as soon as you expose it, you start working against it and undermining it. So I, I'm not, not surprised at all that the military wants to keep, you know, doing, doing whatever it wants uh, without being challenged by the media. Uh, I'm, I'm just surprised the media is... So, you know, if the media had reported on these assaults and then we could have talked about what the SAS... We knew about what soldiers, Australian soldiers were up to in Afghanistan then. Um, you know, maybe something could have happened to have slowed down and protect some of the people in Afghanistan... Uh, instead of the shock after the event that we've seen the last few weeks. Well, Scott Ludlam described in the Parliament in graphic detail what was done to you, and he asked the um, the Army Chief to explain that, and the Army Chief said he took those allegations very seriously. Um, it seems to me that when you look at it um, in hindsight now, several years on, the the upshot of it was that okay, you went and shone a light on the SAS as early as 2012, 2014, um, and you were talking to other people. But what came out, the response from the parliament, was that, the um, first of all, they just said it's just it was perfectly reasonable what was done to you. And then, and then I, I don't know all the details of the court cases that followed, but it doesn't seem that there's been any admission by the army, or, in, or, or even better... There's been no apology given for mm. their actions. Now, also, um, at the same time, Scott Ludlam put up a bill to try to limit the war powers and that, mm. um, and that, you know, get back to the substantive issue of what are we doing in Afghanistan anyway? And he got virtually no support from other members of the parliament. Both the, uh, mm. the government and the opposition just quashed that. So... That got nowhere. Um, and then we find that subsequent, um, you know, that we have those revelations coming out of the first report by Dr. Converts and then Brereton that they were engaging in war crimes and they weren't just making mm. the threats that they made to you. They were just, I know they did carry out some of their threats to you, but they actually carried out the threats all the way in Afghanistan, and they felt, obviously felt they were above it. So the scorecard, you know, in a crass analogy, is not looking too good for the people who are on the side of peace. You know, mm. that obviously Scott Ludlam, a follow-up senator from Western Australia, Steele John, he's trying to do the similar things. He's trying to limit the power that the executive has to send us off on these foreign military excursions. Um, to mm. do harm, and so can, can I say? Can I say? Sorry, I just want to say a couple of things before they, they leave my mind here about this. Yeah. First of all, what happened to me and my friends was horrendous. We were tortured. 
um, threatened with death and anal rape and um, things that no one should ever have to go through. I underwent that with a lot of white privilege. And uh, I, 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 whilst I was actually being assaulted after, after this uh, you know, soldier had tried to choke me out, you know, I was uh, naked, I had my hands and ankles tied, and the soldier, he said, I'm going to choke you out unless you tell me, you know, he was looking for my two other friends. He said, I'm going to choke you out unless you tell me where your friends are, um, which at the time I was trying to not tell him because I didn't want that to go through that. And so he picked me up by my throat uh, with his arm and tried to do what I read later as some kind of judo move where you can black out. Um, and so then he dropped me. It didn't quite work. He dropped me on the ground. And, I, and, and the thought came to me is like, if this is happening to me, what are we doing overseas? What's happening to people whose story I will never know, whose stories will never be told by these men, by men like this? And I, I, and I, still, that res, that's, I still hold that and carry that. Uh, what I went through was nothing, was, was horrendous, but it was nothing compared to what, sol, what, what, what our soldiers are doing to people with a lot less privilege than me in countries where we'll never know. We know that the, the, the SAS um, has been operating in Africa. We know they've been operating all throughout the Middle East and Afghanistan. And who knows what they would get up to. The only way, this is the second point I want to make to what you're saying, the only way we have a chance of finding out what they get up to or even hopefully stopping it is for people who are interested in peace to start taking more risks. This is a really important point that I want, that, I'll, that you know, if you, nothing else from this interview, people need to say this. People don't understand nonviolence. People, I know a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm interested in peace and I'm against war. But if you don't actively get in the way of it, we're living off the privilege and the wealth um, that this colonialism and, and these wars have given us. But whilst we're allowing soldiers to go around doing what they're doing, when you join the army, and I did join the army, okay, you think that what you are doing is bringing peace to the world. You think that by picking up a gun, by following orders, you're making the world a better place. So if the soldiers who believe that by making the world a better place through shooting people are willing to go and shoot and die for that belief, what do we who believe that peace, that to bring peace, we have to work against that? What are we willing to sacrifice? If we spend all our time just talking about peace and just talking to our own audience and to each other and not willing to try and embrace nonviolent power, what are we expecting is going to happen? Nothing is going to happen. We have to learn nonviolence and we have to be willing to escalate that nonviolence. And that means getting in the way. That means lovingly, I believe in nonviolence as a loving force. It means getting in the way of the brutal, violent force that our tax dollars pay for. Anything else we try and do, education and talk is important, but if we do it without escalation, it's just an exercise in privilege and nothing more. We need to step out of the conference rooms and into the peace field, if you like. We need to actually put our bodies in the way because all the talk, all the conversation means nothing if we are not willing to sacrifice something that those who believe in violence sacrifice all the time and every day. And we need to build that culture and we need to get in the way of this thing. And just one, I know I've ranted, but one, one really quick point there on that. So, you know, after these assaults, I, I, I suffered severely. You know, I, I developed PTSD. Um, I had panic attack disorder, which I still, am, you know, have, have bits of, generalized anxiety disorder. Um, but I still work and continue to work hard for peace because what happened to me 
is the tiny tip of an iceberg to what what we're allowing to happen to lots of people. And and you know I, I went back to Swan Island on Monday, uh, and you know we actually went on. Four of us actually went onto the base. And I was scared and worried that I would be treated the same way I was treated in 2014. But I could not stand by and let, you know, what came out of the Barrett report, those soldiers continue to train and murder people with my tax dollars. So I went onto the island uh, with three others and uh, in, in an action on Monday and trespassed again. And this is what happened. We were treated with kid gloves. So I was scared we might get assaulted, possibly angry SAS people might go out of the way and say that to shoot us because we might be terrorists or something. What they did was they treated us with kids' gloves. We had full reign on the base. We walked as far as we could. I was, with, I was very lucky and fortunate to be with a, an older Dominican priest, and um, so we walked as far as, as his health would allow, and we held a banner, and all that happened from 2014 were brutally assaulted, all that happened was they put a security guard on us to keep an eye on where we were, and they waited a couple of hours for the police to come from Geelong, sort themselves out, and come and pick us up. There was a, an alert went over the base. We heard the siren go off, and it said, Attention, Swan Island. There are peace protesters on the base. Please, everybody, remain in your barracks. So for the space of two or three hours, whilst we were on that island, the SAS, which is this brutal force which murders and tortures people, was stopped from training by four people with a mobile phone and a banner. And you think about that. This is the power of nonviolence. We took that space. The cost was high. It cost me and my friends our mental health. Um, but we recovered and we got in the way of this brutal regime. And if people who are interested in peace in Australia are not willing, particularly those of us with, with a lot of white privilege, uh, are not willing to make those forms of sacrifices, nothing is going to change. We need to escalate nonviolence. We need to organise and get in the way of these things. It's the only way we have. In fact, it's the only chance we have of a peaceful, prosperous future for all of us. So we need to get engaged and involved in nonviolence and sacrifice and, and attract people into actions, not just talk about it. If I can do it after what I've been through, anyone with white privilege can do it. Yeah, that was Greg Rolls, who's one of the activists who've been very much involved in this, uh, the SAS. You know, the revelations that we've had now, they come from way back, and a number of people have tried to highlight it and shine a light on it, but haven't had a lot of sort of success in terms of getting an official correction. Mm, well, there has been the Brereton Report uh, done by the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force a couple of weeks ago now, Paul Brereton, um, which was quite a radical departure from the, I guess, not talking about anything publicly. You know, Scott Ludlam trying to bring up these things in Parliament and, oh, no, no, there's nothing to talk about here. Uh, it was quite a departure, but then you... Uh, and hopefully there's been changes already in the process. The Brereton Report was began in 2016. Hopefully there's some changes, but then you do wonder what, you know, how what will be the change as soon as the Chinese government puts out a, a meme, which, as you said, it wasn't that inaccurate. Yeah, sure, it was photoshopped, but it wasn't completely inaccurate. And then the government all of a sudden gets all defensive and high and mighty and everything. Like, uh, like Greg says, you know, it to create a peaceful world it requires a movement it requires you know creative and um courageous action and hard work and to for to somehow enact the power of the people against you know just the as alice murdoski said the executive that can just send people to war without even going to parliament 
this is a symptom of what's wrong with our institutions and society. People who are trying to do something about it are fighting on many different fronts. Of course, we've got the the fight that began during the frontier wars and that people, First Nations people, have been struggling with the repercussions of that. Down here at Kangaroo Point, we've got the other repercussion of the refugees created by the wars and they're trying to get a measure of freedom. They've been just locked up indefinitely and so you've got people who are struggling as best they can to try to deal with that symptom of what is that, you know, what, what's wrong with society. Mm, well, that's it. There's lots of, lots of ways to get involved, lots of issues in the world, but lots of ways to try and make it better. Um. <laughs> I suppose the other thing I should say was when I was doing my research for this, I actually found um, um, in a couple of places where uh, the WikiLeaks re- revelations in the what, the what they call the Afghan war logs the, the WikiLeaks released that in 2010 and all of the things that we're hearing from Brereton was actually 10 years ago Julian Assange was putting this stuff out and now he's still locked up um, and looking at a, a, a lifetime if he gets extradited to the United States a lifetime of just being locked up and um, I should say that in a couple of weeks there's going to be a, um, a both a a meeting at um, Bunyapa Park in West End and um, uh, Julian's dad is going to be talking at that and give reports on what's happening at the Old Bailey in England. We'll have a number of peace activists and uh, an old favourite of the uh, uh, Chris Anderson, a singer, is going to go and play at that and we'll have more on the details on that next week. But that's the other thing, the secret secrecy that Greg was talking about there. We, we've got to keep it out in the public. Mm. And next year there will be a significant uh, weapons expo in Brisbane, the Land Forces uh, Weapons Convention, and there's talk already about trying to blockade that and when it, Greg was talking about non-violence and getting active for peace and so there will be opportunities to do that. I think that's in March next year or April. Um, but anyway, keep posted for that. Yep. That is about all we've got time for on the Paradigm Shift. We'll go out with one final song. This is Anomi with Predator Drones over Yemen. See ya. See you next time.